Texas Business Minds, a presentation of the Texas Business Journals, brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. In this episode, Managing Editor Rob Schneider welcomes the Dallas Business Journal's most inspiring leaders of 2020. COVID-19 created a disruptive time for all of North Texas. So this year, the Dallas Business Journal created a new award, Most Inspiring Leaders of 2020. We honored the companies and leaders that courageously led our region through this ongoing healthcare crisis and the economic devastation that followed. On November 19th at a virtual event, the Dallas Business Journal honored six companies and 14 individuals who made extraordinary contributions to DFW business this year. Today, we're gonna share some of their stories. First up is Michael Hinojosa, The superintendent of schools for the Dallas Independent School District said there was a lot about COVID he didn't know in March. In fact, he said the only thing he was sure of was the latest information would be a constantly moving target. He said even after the district put together an action plan, the non-academic consequences of DISD's decisions were often as important as the academic ones. As things started evolving, I was meeting with my staff regularly, and a lot of people started making decisions about shutting school down right away. Uh, And then, well, we'll be open in a couple of weeks. Well, immediately I said, look, I've been superintendent for 26 years and I've never seen anything like this. And there is, we don't know what we don't know. So the first thing we did is we shut down indefinitely because we knew that there were, this was different and it wasn't like the tornado that was just three schools. This was all of the city, all of the state, all of the country, all of the world. And none of us had ever been through this. So immediately, we went into action. We Luckily, it was right before spring break. And so we had some systems in place that we started deploying because we knew that learning had to go on anyway. And so we luckily had a master plan for uh, one-to-one devices for our students. So we started delivering those devices at spring break because we knew we might not see our kids for a while. And so that was, and then we started worrying about the food because we feed a half a million meals per week. And a lot of the meals that our kids get, that's the only meal they get. So we were also simultaneously trying to plan out how we're going to get the food out to the families. And so, um, and so it was really, uh, we, every, the whole organization had to pivot, you know, on a dime um, because uh, we knew that our families depended on us. Well, the safety of our students was number one. So first of all, we immediately have to, uh, we worried about the academics and the learning losses turned out to be significant. But along the way, we had to make sure that we were safe. And then we also stumbled into the fact that if we're going to have learning, you know, we have to have food for the families. Because if you're not nourished, you're not going to be able to think and eat right. Um, and so the second thing we wanted to do is make sure then how, how you continue learning. Well, despite the fact that we had a master technology plan, we stumbled into the fact that 36,000 households did not have broadband access to the internet. So we had to immediately pivot and find a way to get access to these students through the, to the internet, through broadband. So obviously we came up with the hotspots, but that was a short-term solution. And so then, um, 
as we start training our educators, that was also not linear because a lot we had a lot of great teachers in Dallas, but a lot of them have never taught this way. So they didn't know the, um, the they didn't know the tools of Zoom and Teams that were all very familiar. Now, so we had to teach them that, and then we also had to figure out how to teach them how to teach science in this context. So it was one after another of a logistical issue, and but even if you go way back. Uh, about safety. Luckily, Dallas is a great city and we have partnerships in the chamber connected with CBRE about how we came up with a playbook as how we would re-enter into our building and how we would organize our work. And so immediately they came and met with us. We copied their playbook and we created a team for the uh, central office people to get organized and come back to work. And then we created a separate team to start planning how we get the schools ready. And like your question says, almost all of it uh, was not instructional, but it was all related to instruction. And so it was quite a heavy lift for all of those systems to come together. One of the things that became very evident to us is that students need to, we deal with, with the family's two most prized possessions, their dollars and their children. And so we had to have a plan on how we were going to open school. Probably the best decision I made was not to open on August 17th. And we punted three weeks because, like I said before, we didn't know what we didn't know. But we also knew that business as usual was not appropriate. How could we continue to do education uh, virtually at the same time, making sure that we had to take care of all these systems? So we had to plan significantly about how we were going to do that. Um, we took all the plans and organized them very well, but then we started on a march that, okay, at some point we have to be back uh, in front of our uh, students' families. And so I, I, luckily uh, I met with a lot of people, a lot of superintendents, a lot of community members, the staff, and so we planned on how we were going to reopen, and we decided to be methodical. And knowing that we had some tools, we decided to offer multiple options for our families because a lot of our families were very scared, but a lot of our families need to go to work. A lot of people don't realize that we have 92% economically disadvantaged. We don't apologize for our demography, but a lot of our parents need to be on the job. They don't have the luxury of working from an office. And if they, ha they can't be at home, what's going to happen to their children? So we started uh, fronting those issues. And then also, you know, we had to watch the numbers, you know, in Texas, you know, um, there's two sports, football and spring football. So everybody loves football in Texas. Uh, but we also were really concerned at the time in August, we, I was worried about the numbers of a thousand new cases a day. And so while we saw, and we, we believe in extracurricular activities. In fact, one of our goals is that all of our students participate in one uh, extracurricular activity for a year. So we had to plan how we were going to onboard those systems. And we just stumbled through it. We've had to cancel some games. But in the end, we had a season. The crying shame of this is that Madison High School was in the state championship basketball tournament at the championship game in March when this hit. And they didn't get to finish. They were named co-champions. But now we fast forward six months and we've got to figure this out because our family's got to be back in school and our students need to be with other. Businesses tell us all the time that they want students who can think, working groups uh, and get along with others. Uh, and so all of those things you can't do by yourself. And so that's why it's very important that we brought everything, all the systems back together to try to pull that off as much as possible. 
Next, we talked to Vanessa Ogle. She founded Enseo over 20 years ago and thinks of her team members as family. And some of her family works with her every day. So when the devastation to the hospitality sector, tied to 95% of the company's revenue, happened early on in the pandemic, the decision for Enseo to have to furlough or lay off most of its staff was devastating, to say the least. Ogle talked to us about pivots, PPP loans, and all the highs and lows for her company in 2020. The hospitality sector and the education sector were both decimated by COVID, as we all know. And so first thing we did is we took care of our people and then our people came back to work immediately and started working on new solutions to help take care of guests and people working in the hotel community and then also to help take care of our teachers and students in classrooms. So we've created an entire new set of products all around the pivot uh, to help everyone get back to normal. I founded in so 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago now. And so many of my team members are friends and family or have been friends and family for more than 20 years. And so it was, uh, I knew what we had to do and I knew that we had to react very quickly in the crisis because we've been through 20, 2008 and 2001. Uh, and so, yes, it was a devastating thing to have to do. Uh, we put a tremendous number of the team on furlough, um, including friends and family, literally my aunt, my brother, my sister, um, people that I've worked side by side with for two decades. Um, and then we had to lay off a portion of the team as well. But we did get the PPP loan. And as soon as that loan came through, uh, we were able to bring our entire team back on staff and they put all of their efforts. It's really the perfect story. They put all of their efforts into creating these new products to help bring people back so they could go back to, to traveling and back to school and be safe. The hotel community was devastated, which are, you know, it's 95% of our revenue. Um, so we had customers that just shut down completely. Uh, customers didn't matter that they had long-term contracts. They just stopped paying. Um, and so we worked with our vendor community, with our landlord, um, to do everything that we needed to do so that we could respond positively with these customers of ours. Um, we had a whole bunch of schools that were going to put in our made safe product to keep teachers and students safe in classrooms, the panic buttons, and they couldn't worry about that anymore. All of a sudden, they were worried about keeping students safe. Were they going to do remote learning or in-person learning? Um, and so it, we really had to shift our whole business model. Speaking of shifting the business model, uh, we'd also just signed a lease for a very, very large um, new building, which was going to be an exciting new building to move into. Um, and the current landlord was not gracious. It's one way to say it. The new landlord was fantastic, but we were supposed to do this whole reimagining of the new space. But the new landlord worked with me and said, so we just need to move in now, like just as soon as we possibly can um, to have the lowest rent possible. So we didn't do any of the new moves to the space, um, but everybody, everything, we were all at home. So we moved from one building to the other within a four day period of time. So we now have 10 people going to work at a 50,000 square foot facility and everyone else has been working from home. Um, and of course, this is something that they are being incredibly productive. They're getting more done now than they've ever gotten done before. We've launched more new products in the last few months than we have in the last several years. And so the, the dedication and, and ability of the team to deliver new solutions to help bring us back as, as a nation back to normal, um, they have just been spectacular. And so that will, that will change forever um, how we operate our business. 
Like most medical centers, UT Southwestern had to pivot to keep up with evolving needs when COVID-19 first surged in North Texas. Dr. Mark Neve, Executive Vice President for Institutional Advancement at UT Southwestern, said some key decisions 12 years ago helped make those changes easier to pull off. When I say transformational, it really accelerated things for us. I mean, whether that's digital health, um, you know, whether that's, you know, meeting patients where they are. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, obviously, lots of patients didn't want to come to the hospital. So we had to quickly uh, ramp up telehealth. It's just one example of, of I think, long-lasting change uh, that will impact, you know, our business, the business of healthcare, obviously. And um, I think also it is affirmed for us um, why an academic medical center is needed in, in every major city in this country. Um, you know, it's not just the healthcare that we provide, which is critical and, and as you can imagine, in the middle of the pandemic um, was where we were really focused. But it's also the research that we do here. And it gave us an opportunity to really pivot quickly from, you know, literally over 500 different uh, research, uh, you know, laboratories that we have here, over 200 of them quickly pivoted and made COVID a priority. So we've got literally 200 um, you know, a little over 200 actually uh, research uh, efforts going on right now specific to COVID. So again, it's been transformational for us. Actually, 12 years ago, uh, in the planning for the building of our Clements University Hospital, um, there was, you know, there was a SARS before this SARS-CoV-2. Um, so the, the folks here had anticipated, uh, the physicians, quite frankly, and the infectious disease specialists, uh, really had anticipated that there could be something like, you know, a COVID-19, obviously. And so the hospital was built in a way that you could easily transition and get more expansive, you know, zero pressure rooms quickly if we, we needed to. Um, and so it was, you know, that kind of thinking um, really, I think, portended great things for, you know, this community. I think, you know, you've all heard and, and certainly read about what was happening in hospitals at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think we were able to withstand that pretty effectively because we had that ability to expand in early March or late February. I think, you know, two things are really, really uh, critical. Um, one is, you know, we had to have such a high dosage of empathy for, you know, members of our community for our frontline uh, workers, all of our employees. Um, you, people forget that, you know, the employees here have kids in school also and they're making decisions for their lives. And so, you know, having empathy in our decision-making, um, giving them enough time, you know, and notice that we will allow them to stay off campus and, and being generous, um, you know, in our thought process with, you know, employees in mind. And the other is being nimble. So I think it's, you know, agility, I guess, is a better way to say it. So, you know, having high empathy and being really agile and flexible, um, you know, with our team members, you know, and all of our fantastic, you know, employees really, um, you know, is a learning that I think we'll take away. I think that now will have to be a constant. That's just not you know, sort of, you know, episodic when you, you're in the middle of, you know, a, a situation such as the one that we're in. I think those are two big takeaways that, you know, we will double down on in terms of, you know, how we work with all of our, you know, team members here. Being an academic medical center, we have this sort of tripartite mission, which is education, research, and patient care. And, you know, we're known globally for our research. There's fantastic research that happens here. Six Nobel laureates. I mean, this is a preeminent 
you know, research powerhouse across the country and, and people recognize us for that. Uh, the clinical care um, is top notch, second to none, you know, has been, you know, ranked number one for four years in, in, in a row. And really that's because it's cutting edge, right? We're taking that research and moving it out of a laboratory, right, or a bench and bringing it to the bedside. So, you know, when we're dealing with the most complicated care, right? I mean, this is what, you know, an academic medical center does. It sort of eats complexity for lunch every day. That is what it's about. And then the third component, that education component, we're teaching the next generation of physicians and healthcare providers. And I think that is what makes us unique and different. So if you look across the North Texas, you know, uh, Metroplex, you'll see our doctors, our students, our former students, um, you know, our alums uh, out there on the front lines all across this Metroplex. So that's, that's the unique contribution that we have. It's the idea of the reinforcement of having medical students asking our doctors, why are they doing this? Why are they performing this this way? Really pushing our doctors to, you know, stop and think, but also the research that's there. So we're not just reading the literature, we're actually writing the literature, again, being cutting edge. And I think, you know, that interplay between those three missions are critical to making us a unique uh, contributor uh, to North Texas and beyond. Dr. Mark Neve joining Dallas Business Journal Managing Editor, Rob Schneider. More honorees from the Dallas Business Journal's most inspiring leaders of 2020 when Texas Business Minds continues. I'm Rich Gergasco, President and CEO of Texas Mutual Insurance Company. To everyone who has been hard at work providing the things we need during this crisis, we say thank you. You truly are essential and we're proud to be on the job with you. More at TexasMutual.com slash on the job. Continuing our profiles of the Dallas Business Journal's most inspiring leaders of 2020 with managing editor Rob Schneider. Jeremy Hedrick said the people at Carrington were big believers in telemedicine even before they started their own company, DialCare. Hedrick, president of DialCare, said telehealth can help a lot more potential patients, especially those in remote areas with access to things like mental health care. At Carrington, we've been huge believers in telemedicine for 10, 15 years, long before we had our own telemedicine company. We were users of it. Um, I remember using telemedicine for the first time thinking, wow, this is this is amazing. I, I don't have to take the time uh, to do, the, uh, you know, get to the doctor, wait, see the doctor, drive to the pharmacy, get the script, do, do all of those things. And by no means is telemedicine a fit for every single person, every single time, for every single um, condition. And, and we are absolutely knowledgeable of that. But there are a lot of times where it could be very helpful. So when we launched our, our company, DialCare, in 2017, it was really around knowing that we had a lot of opportunity to bring consumers that we knew we had access to through our other lines of business, um, access to, to telemedicine that maybe they haven't had before, or at least a better experience from what they had had before. Um, we were also big believers um, in knowing that it could impact access to mental health care. There's a shortage of mental health care professionals across the country, especially when you, let's just take Texas as, a, as an example of the geographical challenges that we have. We have some school partnerships in our mental wellness program who the nearest counselor is an hour and a half away. And that's one. And if you have a 17 year old kid who, who doesn't really connect well with that one choice, they're probably not going to get 
the help that they need. Um, and, and so we've, we've always been believers in that. Like I said, um, teledentistry was on the horizon for us. That definitely put things under much more of a vacuum to get it done faster. We launched that in September. Um, and, and really proud of what we've seen and the feedback that we've gotten from our customers to say, I've never used telemedicine before. I didn't realize that this existed or I did realize it existed and just didn't think it would work as well or fill in the blank on why they may not have used it that have come to us and said, this was an absolute gift during this time. We created plans where you could just come on, do a very quick registration and pay per use, pay a one-time consult fee, get your consult and be on your way. So having those three programs has been instrumental um, in navigating this and, and really happy to, to see the use. We, we've seen dramatic increase um, and sustained increase. It wasn't just a, a, a two or three month hit. It, it's been sustained since middle of March uh, and continued to grow. Uh, we've already added several million lives on our uh, teledentistry program and really proud of, of how that's trending. Um, because in the end, you're giving access to care to um, consumers and customers that didn't have it before. And when they need it, it's incredibly convenient, incredibly helpful. It's, it's really um, encouraging and, and rewarding to see that out. The Dallas Volunteer Attorney Program is a collaboration between the Dallas Bar Association and Legal Aid of North Texas. And it had to shut down its clinics during the pandemic. Fawaz Baum, an associate at Hunt and Andrews Kurth and a longtime volunteer for the organization, said he began to retool the technology and relaunch the general clinics that usually took place. The technology platform launched in April and was serving clients soon after. The Dallas Volunteer Attorney Program is an amazing community partner here in Dallas that traditionally holds about 14 in-person clinics. And unfortunately, during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, they were forced to shut those down uh, at the end of March. And essentially, we partnered up with them. Uh, we've had a long time relationship with them serving in their in-person clinics. And in April, we went ahead and partnered up with them to try to take those in-person clinics and make them go virtual. And essentially, what we were able to accomplish was uh, completely revolutionizing their clinic process, uh, making a platform that allows for applicants to um, attend clinics virtually and for attorneys to participate and volunteer their time and interface with those applicants and then streamline all the results back to the organization, the Dallas Volunteer Attorney Program. So it really opened up all of their clinics once again, and we've been holding a clinic every week since April. So to date, we've about hit 30 clinics and we're on track by the end of the year to help about 2000 applications and have those processed. Folks were really struggling, um, obviously, with the with the consequences of the pandemic, but um, real people were still suffering through real problems that existed before the pandemic hit such as employment issues, divorce custody issues, wills and probate, as an example. And once the pandemic hit and all um, pro bono services and intake clinics around Dallas were getting shut down because they were always held in a traditional in-person setting, we found out very quickly that these folks are still, still struggling and there's a great need in the Dallas community for folks to step up and help them as much as possible. 
So um, we've been able to open up those clinics now virtually uh, with a platform and get the assistance uh, to those that need it the most. And it's been a great win for Dallas, and it's been a great win for our profession and the attorneys involved because attorneys can now volunteer even more time. And it's been a win for the um, applicants and folks in Dallas as well uh, because they no longer have to take time off of their work schedule, especially as um, the community is trying to uh, take care of kids and children at home. Um, the platform is accessible via the phone, the tablets, desktops, and it's made it very user-friendly and really um, moved pro bono work and helping folks in the, uh, in the legal sphere to the next phase in the technology realm. For Jacob Tyndall, partner at architecture firm 5G Studio Collaborative, COVID meant a lot of projects went on hold. It was after he talked to a friend about the devastation in the restaurant industry and also having a friend come down with COVID that he started to understand the plight of medical workers and restaurant workers as well. So he decided to create his 7740 project. Tyndall talked to us about why it started and who it helps. So in March, uh, when the shelter in place orders took effect, a lot of us were already starting to work from home and uh, and, you know, for us, we're an architecture firm, so a lot of our projects were put on hold. A lot of them uh, were stopping indefinitely and the equity sources were drying up and it was uh, it was a very chaotic time. Uh, and, you know, we had seen all the things that had happened in Italy, what was hitting the East Coast. And I was talking to a friend of mine who owns some restaurants here in Dallas, and he was talking about how many people were becoming unemployed in that industry uh, by the thousands. And how was this industry going to survive? And at the same time, a friend of mine actually came down with COVID in March and he went to UT Southwestern and he was in the COVID ward and uh, in ICU, and it was a very scary moment. And so I'm thinking, well, I, you know, I want to help him. Maybe I could cater some food from this restaurant and uh, put the two together. And that's when I thought, well, really, this is going to peak in April and May, and we should probably do something bigger. And so let's look at bringing seven restaurants together and trying to help them out. And let's provide food to seven of the biggest uh, COVID-19 wards in Dallas as a thank you for everything that they're doing, putting their lives on the line to help us out. And uh, in order to do that, let's raise some money and let's go out to the business community and try to bring in some money. So that's where the 7740 came from. It was seven restaurants helping seven hospitals supported by 40 donors. And that was a, it was a, I love the idea. It was a great concept, but uh, I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to do this? Because I know I'm not the only business owner in town that's really nervous and really struggling. And what does the future hold? And now I'm going to go out and try to fundraise. And I'm part of a CEO group. So uh, immediately I pitched the idea to those guys and they said, yeah, we love it. Count us in. So immediately uh, at launch, I'm trying to think, okay, well, we probably need around $100,000 to do this uh, adequately. And uh, instantly I pulled in $30,000 just from the CEO group. And I was like, okay, that's a great start. Let's go with that and get this thing launched. Thanks for joining us today. Please go to DallasBusinessJournal.com for more stories about our most inspiring leaders. Thank you for downloading Texas Business Minds, presented by the Texas Business Journals. 
and brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas.